Did you know the Tribeca Festival showcases more than just film and TV? Tribeca's audio storytelling program, sponsored by Audible, is happening June 9th to June 13th in NYC. It includes premieres of new indie podcasts, plus exclusive live tapings of popular podcasts like Slow Burn, Criminal with special guest Melissa McCarthy, and Vibe Check with special guest Lena Waithe. Don't miss it. Get your tickets now at TribecaFilm.com. Get ready to laugh out loud at the Tribeca Festival, June 5th to June 16th in NYC. Experience hilarious talks, comedy specials, and feel-good films with your fan-favorite comedians like Hannah Einbinder, Judd Apatow, Neil Patrick Harris, Tig Notaro, and more. You have to be there. Get your tickets now at TribecaFilm.com. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Ezra Klein Show. I spoke this week with Jesse Eisenberg, uh, the actor who's now in everything. Specifically, he's about to be in Now You See Me 2, which is a magician heist movie, which I watched over the weekend. It's actually a lot of fun. That is, I think it is fair to say, not the main topic of our conversation, which is, I, I know people don't like it when I describe conversations as wide ranging because it's very cliche, but in this case, it is very true. I had a total blast talking to, to talking to Jesse. We talk a lot about Jewish humor and Jewish traditions. We talk a lot about assimilation and how that relates to his comedy. We talk about his writing. He's written a lot for The New Yorker and for McSweeney's and some great comedy writing and is bringing that to a television show. We talk about the difference, which I'm really interested in, in writing nonfiction and then writing fiction. And he talks, and I thought this was super fascinating. And if you're a writer, I think you'll really enjoy it. He talked about what is different in scenes that are written for people to actually act them out and have dialogue around them versus scenes that are just beautifully written and the way things that are just great writing can really fail when you move them to television or or the theater or the stage uh, or the movies, I'm sorry. We talk a lot about Nepal and China and how do you keep learning, talk about the terror he feels about becoming more successful and the way in which I have some similar feelings. It gets into a little bit of therapy session for a little while in there. And it really goes on and on. Uh, Again, I had a really good time talking to him. I think you folks will really enjoy this discussion. It really gets into some interesting and pretty deep and a little bit unusually for me personal topics. So I I hope you like it as much as I did. As always, I have a couple quick requests for you. One is to listen to my other podcast, The Weeds, which I do along with Matt Iglesias and Sarah Cliff. And that is all policy all the time. It is a lot of fun to do. And I think that if you're enjoying the show, you're going to enjoy that one. Second one is to share this show, put it on Facebook, put it on Twitter, rate it on iTunes, which helps us in the algorithm and just conveys to people this is something you might actually enjoy but if you're if you're liking this please take an episode you liked and send it out to other people that is how the show grows it's how it, it keeps developing audience and it's really important to its success and its longevity and i am genuinely personally grateful when you do it uh, and finally continue to email me at ezra klein show at vox.com again ezra klein show at vox.com with your feedback with your guest suggestions with questions you would like to see me asking uh, everyone particularly in those ending set of questions i do i've gotten a lot of great feedback from you all, and I've appreciated it tremendously. Uh, So without further ado, here is Jesse Eisenberg. I flew into America last night because I'm working in England now, so uh, I'm just here for like 12 hours. So I talk about the movie until my jaw hurts, and then I go back to England. (laughs) That, That sounds super exhausting, actually. What are you doing in England? 
I'm doing a play, like I'm a playwright and uh, I act in theater like every year, pretty much. So, uh, so this is my first West End production. Is this a play that you released in America about a year or two years ago? Yeah, we did this play last year around the same time in New York. And so this is like the first uh, English production of it. Congratulations. That must be Thanks. really, really cool. It is. It's exhausting and it's like the most, it's, it's a stressful uh, experience because I, uh, just because I'm trying to maintain the show as well as acting it and um, from a few different perspectives. But it's, you know, fulfilling in some way, I'm sure, when I'm 80. Fulfilling in some way, I'm sure. Uh, so are you at the, are you at the point uh, where getting to do new cool things instead of manifesting as awesome manifests as, oh shit, more work? You mean where I perceive new cool things that other people would like as just work? Exactly. No, no, it's the exact opposite. The oh, more really? I do, the more say in what I do. So it actually becomes that much more exciting. Uh, I just wrote and directed my first uh, television pilot, which is based on a book I wrote. The more I do, the more of a say I have in it. And it makes it that much more gratifying because I feel like I'm involved in more varied aspects of everything that I work on. That's really cool. Is the TV pilot you're working on related to the book of the nine-year-old doing um, restaurant reviews? That book yeah, is fantastic. Yeah, yeah. yeah, exactly. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, exactly. So um, we filmed the pilot, which takes place at a Japanese restaurant, and Parker Posey plays the mom, and we got this great actor playing the boy, and it's just, it turned out really well. So we're just editing it now. I'm super excited to hear that. So how do you, how do you take that book, which in, I mean, you did these for McSweeney's for years, and I'm a, I'm a big fan mm -hmm. of them, but oh, right. what is the concept by which that becomes a television show, right? What, what is the television show really about, so to speak? The show is about a young boy kind of watching his mother grow up in the wake of a divorce. And so the reason I thought it could make a, a, a good TV show is because um, each episode could take place at a different restaurant or a different venue, and it would make the show have characters that you enjoy seeing every week, but different enough because they're in a different venue each week. And the venue, as I did in the stories, is a metaphor for the relationship and the way their relationship changes. So I thought it makes sense for an episodic show that kind of is semi-episodic and semi-resets after each episode. So it's interesting for me to hear that the, the writing you did for, for McSweeney's is moving into television. How do you think you write differently when you're initially thinking about it as text for, I was going to say for the printed page, but obviously it's not for the page anymore. But how do you write differently when you're thinking about it as a short story versus when you're thinking about it as something that will be acted? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think I have a unique perspective because I am an actor and I know what, I know the difference between a scene that's actable and a scene that's well-written. And those are two different things. Of course, the best kind of scenes overlap and have both. But oftentimes there will be a scene that's really well-written or a play that's very poetic and interesting, but totally unactable. It's no, there's no way to actually get behind the psychology of the creation or the illusion of the creation of the character on the page. But luckily, I'm not a good enough writer in the third person to write things that are not actable. I write well when I'm writing dialogue, when I'm writing stream of consciousness, first-person voice. So my stuff is actable because that's where my mind goes. So even when I'm writing what looks like prose, it's actually stream of consciousness first person narrative. And so in that way, my things are easily, easily translatable. And I also know kind of like what makes a, a good scene as opposed to kind of what readers like. So that means, you know, when, the, you know, you end up uh, kind of throwing out really 
good jokes that you think would be, you know, funny to read, but that, you know, in a million years would never play when an actor is saying them or when uh, you're looking at them visually in a different medium. Because my background is an actor, I kind of filter everything through that. So I would never write something that I think an actor couldn't do because I think it's funny. Um, And I'm acting in a play now that I wrote and I'm writing for five characters. And I know that these actors who are playing these five characters have to perform the show a hundred times. And if there's a crack in their character, they're going to find it usually in the rehearsal process, not during one of the performances, and they're not going to be able to do 100 performances of it. So I'm very conscious and sensitive to that. So I, I'm super fascinated by this. So I'm a non, my, my main job is not podcasting, uh, obviously, probably, given how I am at it. But no, no, it's, no. it's nonfiction. Great. I'm a nonfiction writer, so I'm a journalist. And I have tried at different points to write fiction. I've tried to write dialogue. I've tried to write uh, and create more full worlds. And I have found that whatever it is that allows you to do that, I do not have. My wife is a tremendous fiction writer. I know some really great novelists, but I've never been able to to access that myself. So I would love to hear from you what you see as the distinction. What are, what are the qualities of a um, scene that is beautiful writing, but does not translate in, into acting? I'm sure you see this in scripts all the time. So what are the hallmarks of it? What do people who make that mistake miss? It's mostly in theater and it's mostly abstract avant-garde theater. And I I love performing that kind of stuff. Um, so I'm aware of when it's not good. It's usually stuff that comes from people who maybe are more inclined to writing poetry, where the words textually and visually are beautiful and logical and put together in an order that is, you know, aesthetic, but to perform it requires uh, just emotional illogic that actors are not trained to be able to do or, or, or humans are not be able to, trained to be able to do. So, you know, you have to think about like, you know, what is a person experiencing and then how are they displaying that? Usually a character is not displaying the thing that they're experiencing. They're probably experiencing some kind of deep insecurity, some deep well of frustration, and yet probably what they're expressing, uh, you know, on the outside is confidence, satisfaction, which is, of course, a mask. So you have to, you know, display all of those kinds of communication, you know, and what we say to other people are, you know, we're saying three things to them. We're saying the information that we're giving them. We're saying something about the relationship that we have with them. And then we're saying something about ourselves. So when I say, you know, I'm a big fan of the Golden State Warriors. What I'm telling you is, uh, you know, I'm telling you about myself that I like basketball. I'm telling you that I don't mind supporting a team that's doing well. Maybe that says something about my own ambitions. Uh, And I'm also telling you that, hey, I'm a regular guy. I could like basketball. You know, so that's what characters are doing. That's what humans do all the time. So it may be what humans do all the time, but I don't think most of us are aware we're doing it all the time, right? We're we're, We're all always communicating on a bunch of different levels, but I think mostly we don't see it and it leads to a lot of miscommunication. Does being an actor and and being a playwright and having to think about these multiple levels of communication and meaning at all times, has that changed the way you communicate in your personal life? When you're having a fight with a friend or a family member or your girlfriend, are you thinking simultaneously, okay, I'm saying this, but I also need to be projecting this internal state? I mean, does this translate? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think maybe I have like a self-awareness that I was probably more wired to have as a young person rather than because of any kind of like acting school I went to. I think it's just the way I was wired. It's probably also something cultural. I think my parents have it. I think Jewish history throughout the ages have been kind of self-reflective, self-critical, mired in guilt, which oftentimes makes you question your own behavior before you'd question the behavior of your nemesis, let's say. So I think that's probably something biological. And now uh, as an adult, 
adult and a professional, I'm interested in it in a creative way, in an aesthetic way. So it's something I choose to focus on. Probably the main thing that it affects is, you know, looking at politics because, you know, especially now during an election year and you're in D.C., so, you're, you know, you're really surrounded by it, is you see the just the silly pandering hypocrisy of politics. And if you're kind of aware of this stuff, you'll be really hard pressed to enjoy political discourse. And if you're at all uh, aware of it, even in a little way, it's so blatant that, you, you know, you're, you're kind of probably turned off to it anyway. Give, give me an actor and director's take on Donald Trump and his campaign. When you look at him, do you think that is a guy who is a great actor and great at stagecraft? When you look at him, do you think that is just all id? How, how do you see him if you were honestly evaluating this as like the pilot for the Donald Trump uh, White <laughs> House presidential show? I'm impressed by his flow in public speaking. It's a hard thing to do. Um, he He's able to speak in public in a way that feels natural, uh, irrespective of the content, really irrespective of the content, it feels it feels natural. And that's really important. What I do as an actor is try to make fictional things seem real and seem natural. And so I understand the difficulties in the nuance with that. And politicians can do it really well. And he, he does it well, like he does it well, which if you disagree with him is disconcerting because you can understand how that can be attractive to a lot of people. Does Hillary Clinton do it well? Yeah, I don't like she doesn't like flow in the same way. I think probably my politics lean toward I mean, I come from like, a, you know, a liberal Jewish family. So my politics are, of course, more in line with Democrats throughout history, of course. But like, yeah, she doesn't do it as naturally. Now, I don't know if that necessarily translates into governance. I don't know really where it translates into governance. You know, Hillary Clinton says all the time, you you know, you can't you can't paint in poetry, you govern in prose. And so, like, I'm not sure how much that kind of flow that an actor looks at and thinks, hey, that sounds really natural. You know, is that important, you know, in uh, in some of the more substantive issues that people, uh, you know, in office have to deal with? This speaks to a part of the way we evaluate politicians, I think, is really strange and fascinating. So you, you were talking a couple of minutes ago about authenticity, how one thing Donald Trump has is the ability to stand up on a stage and it seems like whatever he is telling you is really the thing he is thinking at that moment, that there's right. no buffering, there's no disruption between his his, <laughs> his brain and his, his mouth. And yeah. Hillary Clinton doesn't have that. John Stewart once said sort of in a great way, and I thought this really uh, hit it well. He said that when you see her answer a question, you see a seven second buffering process. It's like you can watch <laughs> right. the, the program loading. Um, Joe Biden also has what, what Donald Trump has, where it just seems like he's just saying whatever the hell comes into his head to you. And on the one hand, we call that authenticity and we feel like they're leveling with us. And on the other hand, I always watch it and I think I cannot imagine anything stranger as a human being, anything less authentic as a human being than to stand up in front of 30,000 people <laughs> or to get on national television and just completely speak from the fucking cuff. And that's right. Actors that's spend all their lives learning how to look natural. And then we call that at least there like great acting. And here we say, if you look natural in these incredibly unnatural situations, then you're authentic. And if you look unnatural, which is, I think, what most of us would do, you're inauthentic. And it often feels to me like we have completely flipped what that word should actually mean. 
That's a great analysis, which probably speaks to the idea that we are in the process of hiring a public person. And when you're hiring a public person to act in a commercial or to run a, you know, an organization or a country in this case, uh, maybe it's those things that we look for, you know, which is why, you know, you could meet, you know, in my profession, and I'm probably certainly guilty of this. Uh, you know, I know when I'm on stage doing this play every night, I come across like a natural person, but I am uh, so drained after the show that I think afterwards I I think I come off to people like a crazy person, but it's because I have nothing left in me. And I think it must be weird maybe for people to see me having looked natural, relatable, dramatic, like them on stage and then appear aloof afterwards. But that's just how I'm feeling. And so, yeah, in that way, I think maybe when we look to people for authenticity, what we're actually looking for is the illusion of authenticity. I think that's right. And I think it's an interesting question of, of why I wanted. I mean, I have a thing where I actually never want to meet people who are heroes to me. Uh, right, I've had the good fortune in my life to, to do it a number of times. And some and sometimes I'm even not disappointed by it. But right. I, I never quite know why people would want to get a little bit beyond the current because I read a, a lot of biographies and a lot of histories. And I think the main thing you learn from that is that people who are able to project tremendously onto the world, that there is something that it takes out of them privately, that it is very rare that you read something, one of one of these books and you find, and that person just had a happy home life and seemed like a great guy or a great woman. <laughs> and <laughs> right. it, it, we have, I think, a real desire to get past, as I think we talk about at the surface with people. And mm -hmm. then what we get is often, I think, not great. What you said a minute ago there, I thought was a little bit profound about we're hiring for a public job because the in other countries, we separate the head of state and the prime minister. We have someone who is there for doing the big public ceremony. And then we have someone who runs a coalition and the way they get elected is that their coalition makes them the head of the, the head of the enterprise. And so you're really selecting there for someone who is able to work the machinery of their government and their coalitions uh, and their coalitions, uh, fissures and, and, and points of unity. And here we do this very strange thing where we test people on a set of traits that is very head of state-like, but I am right. not at all convinced is all that relevant to being a good president. Like having a beer with them. Right, like having a beer with them. I don't want to fucking have a beer with my president. No, my feeling about, you know, uh, electing somebody for a public office is I want somebody who's a million times smarter than me. I don't want to have any, you know, I don't want to have any relatability to them. I, I wouldn't, because I, I would do a terrible job. Right, and it's a it's a fascinating thing. I There's so many people in my life, and if you just asked me to rank people I would like to have a beer with, that would just not be the same list as people I would like to see <laughs> become the president. Exactly right. Exactly I, I, right. I'm always, I'm always completely baffled by that. To change gears here a little bit, you talked a couple minutes ago about Jewish humor, and I'd read a, a great interview you did with Tablet about this, and you said something that, I, I'm Jewish and I've read a lot of fiction in that tradition, and you said something that I wanted to ask you about, where you said that this kind of fiction, which dovetails with the Jewish American experience, Jews have a way of both assimilating and separating, and they do it very deftly. And I wanted to, to hear you talk about that a little bit in the context of, of Jewish fiction and how you see that playing out, because I thought it was a really good encapsulation of something that I've thought about a bit, but never been able to define quite that articulately. Yeah. I mean, I see it happen, you know, as acutely as 
my family and as broadly as, you know, reading Philip Roth or, you know, or, or seeing a Woody Allen movie or actually even more specifically like a Mel Brooks movie, which I think is probably uh, more indicative of assimilated humor than Woody Allen is. In a personal way, if it benefits the culture to be kind of seamlessly integrated into the hegemony in America, then they do that. And not in a kind of Machiavellian selfish way, but in a survival way. And then conversely, if it benefits them to be in a, you know, an exotic outsider, then they do that. And I think, I don't think there's anything wrong with that kind of code switching. I think everybody in every culture does their own version of that. I just think Jews, based on the history, based on their appearance, have been able to do it very successfully in many different places. They did it in Europe. They did it in Eastern Europe. They did it in, frankly, in Western Europe. And then uh, most explicitly in America in the last hundred years. I think that's so interesting because when I think of that history, uh, and this isn't to argue, it's only to draw out the point, I think it, it always seems to me Jews did it very unsuccessfully for most of their history until very recently, that, that it is it has worked in the the late 20, the mid to late 20th century and, and, and the 21st century, particularly, I think, in America, but that on the one hand, we had to do it in more places than, than virtually any other people just by, by virtue of being diasporatic. But on the other hand, there has been a, a real sense the whole time of Jews as other. And it, it seemed that for there have not been many times where for very long, it seemed that we were able to just, you know, become become part of the whole in the way that if you look at uh, America, even it, there's a great book about I think I'm going to get the name slightly wrong, but I think it's called like how the Italians became white or something. And it's about how, you know, if you go back to, to the early 20th century, late 19th century, Italians and, and, and Poles and, and all kinds of sort of ethnic uh, white folks eventually just got assimilated into whiteness, the Irish. And back then they were considered different races. And even today, I think Jews still stand a little bit more separate than that. Yeah, and I think that's probably by choice. And forgive me for being historically wrong. I was just thinking really of like in the turn of the century, my family had a dry goods store in in Poland, in south, southeastern Poland. And they were seen, according to my aunt, who I see every week. I saw her last night. She's 104. Uh, she grew up there. They were totally seamlessly integrated and liked in this town and that it wasn't until the war broke out that the Poles, from their perspective, turned against them, maybe because they felt that they brought the Germans, you know, to Poland in some way, uh, which is not historically, I would say, accurate, but maybe understandable from their perspective at the time of horror. I think the Jews, uh, in terms of what you said, uh, kind of keeping one foot outside the door, I think they, do, I, 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 I've thought about this a lot because I, I think about it in terms of my own lifestyle, and I think that they do that for survival in America. You think, well, that's paradoxical. Why wouldn't they, why would, why would they not fully assimilate into American culture? And I have a feeling, and it's this, uh, when Jews were hungry in America, they accomplished a lot. And now I think there is a bit of a kind of relaxed quality. And I think if they feel like we assimilate too much and we relax too much, either something bad might happen, because historically that's what's occurred, or we're not going to accomplish that much because we're kind of just, you know, we're going to be, you know, we're going to have our nice apartment and then that's it and we'll stop. And one of the things my play is about in London that, uh, that I wrote is uh, my character is a third generation Jewish American, the son of uh, a dentist. This is not really explicit in the play, but it's, 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 it's what underpins it. And his roommate is a Nepalese immigrant who came to the country six months ago and is studying business at Stern at NYU and is a real upstart and ambitious. And my character uh, does nothing because my character feels like the world owes him. And of course, the world doesn't owe him and the world has given him nothing. And it's this juxtaposition of these two roommates that under underpins the drama of this play. And what I'm trying to discuss is 
how, and it's something that's on my mind all the time, is that, you know, uh, the guy who comes here from Nepal, and I based it on a friend of mine, uh, who's the smartest guy I know, who lives in Kathmandu, he works harder than I do, and he deserves more than I do, even though I come from a place of greater privilege than him. You know, the two of us are both starting out at home plate trying to hit a single. Just because I was born on third doesn't mean I get to stay there. Um, And if he can hit farther than I can, then he should be the first one to cross home to extend the metaphor beyond its uh, requirement. That's what's on my mind all the time. And so as a Jewish person who feels like, well, I could have assimilated into the white hegemonic culture uh, and be uh, totally comfortable and go out to the Hamptons and, you know, go golfing or whatever it is that people do. I don't want to do that because I feel like I will, you know, to quote Woody Allen, ripen and then rot. What are the qualities that you cultivate or the practices that you cultivate that you feel keep you from from assimilating (laughs) into that white hegemonic culture? Um, it's going to sound crazy, but kind of like making myself miserable occasionally, uh, not, you know, not going to the, you know, uh, we don't go to country clubs. We don't even go, my family, we don't go on vacation and, you know, and look, I'm a movie actor now. I could certainly afford to take my family on vacation, but it's just not in us to like go somewhere that's slightly warm and sit down for a day. It would never occur to us. It's not in our blood. It's not on our minds. And my parents, I want to send them away. I want to give them something. My, you know, my dad, uh, is such a hardworking guy. I mean, he teaches at two universities. Uh, he lives in central Jersey, but he drives up to Albany to teach. Uh, my mom, she works at a hospital. I mean, these are really hardworking, wonderful, bright people who are, you know, now in their 60s and deserve a break. They've never taken a vacation. And I want to, as a successful movie actor, give them a vacation. And it's just they would never take it. Like, And so one of the things I think they do is they buy uh, they get animals. So they have like several animals in their house. And I always thought this is what people do when their lives become too easy and they're not comfortable with ease as they get an animal because an animal can make your life really difficult. If you're too old to have a child, you get an animal, they get a parrot that wakes them up at four in the morning. Now, why do they even need a parrot? They're animal rights activists. I don't think they even believe that parrots should exist in, you know, domesticated uh, environments. (laughs) And yet they have a parrot that wakes them up at four in the morning that they have to go down. And when they feed it, it bites their ear in a way that's like irreparable. And I think this is a good example of them unconsciously not assimilating into culture they feel would make them lazy. What, What animals do they? Yeah, well, give me the give me the menagerie. You know, the three cats, the uh, a, a parrot, uh, a dog that you know jumps on them the minute they get home. Now, I think there's this other aspect too, which is maybe it keeps them young and it keeps them like on their toes. And I think maybe they genuinely have an affection for their animals, although I can't see having an affection with uh, the the parrot. But I think I think I really do think it's it's what's keeping them feeling like they haven't assimilated into white suburban culture because something about them, something about that, doesn't feel right. What does your dad teach? Uh, he teaches like um, like sociology, <laughs> which of course makes sense based on my uh, cryptic analysis. Yeah, I mean it's fascinating because that is a very sociological analysis of of, of Judaism and and assimil- assimilation. Did he tell you a lot about sociology? Or did you read much sociology growing up or in college? I did. I studied anthropology and sociology in school. So kind of looking at culture from the outside is on my mind all the time. And I write about it. My three plays all feature an immigrant character uh, because it's what I'm interested in. And it's what I try to expose myself to, given the opportunity. My dad's a really smart guy. I've never given him this analysis. I'm glad we're doing this on a (laughs) show that he can then access and uh, analyze himself. But I think he would probably I think he'd probably laugh and then agree with me. So I'm going to wade way out of my depth real quick here. And you're going to find uh, how thin my knowledge gets in a second. But uh, because you said you studied this stuff, so you've read, uh, it sounds like, a lot of Emile Durkheim? 
Oh, a little bit, but this is like now 10 years ago, but yes. It sounds like you think, uh, it sounds like the idea of anime, this idea of when you have enough, you lose this kind of, of, of will to succeed and that, and that right. you can sort of lose your spiritual core. Um, right, in, a, right. in a state of, I don't think it's always abundance in his work. And, and again, I'm sure I'm going to get a million emails from people who have actually read this uh, closely and sometime sooner than 10 years ago. But but that sounds a bit like what you're talking about, that you are afraid that if you let off the gas a bit or if, or if Jews let off the gas a bit, that they will sort of fall into a kind of spiritual and, and productive torpor. Yes, I think that's right. And I feel that in a way that is totally unconscious for me. And, and the, the most glaring example for that in my life right now is every day I walk to the theater. It's the most beautiful theater in the West End. My There's a big picture of my face and it says written by and there's a great quote that it says it's a triumph, the play. And all I see when I see that image, which I see every day because I go to the theater every single day, is terror. How am I going to make sure that tonight's audience thinks the thing that it says on the poster. And I don't feel any satisfaction. I don't feel any glee. I don't feel joy. I don't feel accomplishment. I feel pure terror. And I'm not exaggerating. It's not false humility because there's nothing to, to, to be humble about this feeling. It's pure terror. It's how am I going to live up to what they have been promised and what they're paying for. And I think in a probably kind of macro anthropological way, I'm feeling that to keep myself good at it. Because the moment I think, oh, it's a triumph. That's great. I don't have to do anything tonight. Or my face on the poster. That's all that matters because most people are passing outside the theater, not in the theater. So most people will just see the poster. Uh, the moment I have that feeling is the moment the play is no longer good. And the moment my writing is no longer probing in a way that lives up to the standard that I set for myself. And so in that way, it is survival. And it's totally paradoxical because you're killing yourself to survive. David Brooks writes about this sometimes. Um, you know, whatever you think of his politics, I really like his social writing. And he wrote that he gave a commencement. Oh, no, he was at a graduation. I think it was at Harvard. And he said, something along the lines of like all the names were either South Asian or Chinese uh, uh, who were getting their diplomas. And he said it used to be Jews. And he said, God, what, you know, it's, it's obviously great that this new community, you know, and I, my current play is about a, you know, a, a Nepalese character based on a friend of mine who's Nepalese. So obviously I'm, you know, fantastically supportive of new immigrant groups and especially that immigrant, immigrant group doing well in America. That's thrilling to me as a creative person because it makes the country more interesting. It makes my life more interesting. But as a Jewish person, I'm like, oh, Good, good, goodness gracious, God, we, God, we should, you know, I should some tutor some some kids at the yeshiva for their SATs because you think like, well, yeah, if the hunger is being lost, you know, if we're suddenly led into the golf club, then are we going to swing as hard? That, that's so fascinating. I want to go back to to the point you made about feeling terror because this goes into something I had I think asked you about poorly earlier. So I'm I'm going to lay a few more of my cards on the table here. I've been lucky to be, um, I'm, I'm no movie star, but I've done I've done quite well in my field. And I get to do in the course of a week, a lot of things that seem, uh, I see it from the way my family reacts to it, from the way some of my friends react to it, really super fucking cool. I get to meet sort of amazing, impressive people. I get to talk to folks like you. I get to be at a lot of, you know, conferences or events or whatever that, that, that people would, you know, really, really want to be at. And I, I get to go and I get invited. And all of it, it all meant like my mom will always say, I hope you're really, you know, enjoying this. And I, I always say like, no, like it just manifests as work and fear and pressure. Like the only way exactly. I get the, the better I do, the less happy I become, which, exactly. and, and I like your spin on it, which is that you do that in order to, to stay good at it. But on the other hand, um, I, I really wonder if this actually does 
keep you good at things because in some ways I think that you can keep adding so much onto the plate because for whatever reason you have a lot of trouble saying no and by you I mean me and secondarily that it doesn't it gets less fun as opposed to more fun and I wonder if you just begin to crush your creativity a little bit or crush your 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 joy for it. Yes. What I think is that a good therapist would tell you you're hurting your hurting your life in order to, you know, kind of further what you think is the only way to stay good at it, keep it interesting, keep you moving, keep you ambitious and keep you successful at the thing that uh, got you to where you are in the first place. And I and you probably assume maybe correctly, maybe not. uh, I'm speaking really to myself that if you lose that, then you'll lose what got you there in the first place. And you attribute the success to the pain, which again, I don't know if that's necessarily right. I don't know if that's right. I mean, I guess the test would be, you know, if you really enjoy going to those parties and you really enjoy doing the interviews that you've set out to do and that you're so fortunate enough to to get, if you did them happy, would they still be good? Maybe they'd be better. Who knows? But it's probably too scary to test it. Yeah, no, I mean, for, for me is one reason I'm trying to say no to a lot of travel and conferences and all that. I, it turns out I like the work, but not but not the perks of the work. But but that brings up, I think, a great question I have for you. It is a, I, li- I like describing my own questions as great. What do you do to actually keep getting good ideas? Because something that I notice is, you know, so I, I began as a journalist. I now run an organization with, with you know, a, a lot of folks in there to 70 folks in it. I do more things like this where I'm doing interviews. And a lot of those ideas I got that ended up driving a lot of my success or a lot of my great projects or the journalism that I think of as, as the work I'm really proud of, it came from time that had slack in it, times when I was reading something weird or engaging in with products or kinds of culture that are maybe a little bit outside my norm. And I began to get ideas from one space that I could apply in another. It sounds like you're doing plays, you're doing writing, you're doing movies, you have to do promotional tours. It doesn't sound to me like you have a lot of slack. I come up with a lot of my better ideas or bigger thoughts on vacation. So how do you keep getting inputs that lead to good outputs? How do you keep learning? I am surrounded by people that are unusual. I spent the last four months uh, before I started the play volunteering at a domestic violence shelter in southern Indiana because of a family connection. I was living out there with my partner and uh, working at this place, raising money for it. My best friend is a teacher for incarcerated youth. So I go into his school. I hear his stories. We've been best friends since I'm like 20 and 19. So I am a curious person. So like if I'm in a taxi cab, I'm going to be interviewing the guy and, you know, especially uh, in New York and now in London, you know, they're the most diverse cities in, in the world. And so I'm just constantly curious. I'm far more curious about other people's lives than I am interested in telling anybody about my own, especially by virtue of me being a public person and talking about myself all the time. And the first trip I went on with my girlfriend when I was 18 was Venezuela. It was the first trip that I took out of the country because I was dating somebody who was um, like Hugo Chavez at the time, was curious about what he was doing in Venezuela. This was at the time before, you know, Venezuela really spun out of control. It was at the time when he was a new leader. And it seemed like, you know, if you're a kind of liberal American, you might think, wow, what are they doing in the in the slums of Venezuela? That might be really beneficial. So that was the first time I left the country. And I've tried to kind of live like that. The last vacation I went on was in uh, Ulan 
Ulaanbaatar in Mongolia and Irkutsk in uh, Siberia. So that's the kind of stuff I'm interested in. That's what I surround myself with. And all of the movie stuff, I, it's all work to me. I love doing it. Um, I mean, I love the acting in the movies, but all like the perk movie stuff, you know, getting to explore fancy things. It's just all the same to me. Any kind of nice hotel room is the same as the other nice hotel rooms. But if I can backpack through Kathmandu, that is uh, what I try to do. Okay, so you just talked uh, for a minute about how you're more interested in other people's lives than your own. You said something in an interview that I thought was so interesting. You were asked about fame and you basically said, look, like on the one hand, it makes it harder to sit in a cafe with headphones and chill out and eavesdrop on people and just sort of be normal. But then you said, by virtue of them breaking this tacit pact we have of living in New York City, which is that you don't talk to anybody whenever they, I now have free reign to ask them something very personal. So you said that when people come up to you and say, hey, you're Jesse Eisenberg, you say, hey, are your parents divorced? I mean, so what do you ask yes. them? <laughs> That's exactly right. Yeah, I always ask people where they're from and living in a place like New York or now in London, they're usually not from there. Uh, so that's the first interesting thing. And then I get to learn about that country for 20 minutes. If somebody's burdened you with, you know, coming up to you, which is already a really weird thing to do, you know, with no invitation, it gives you like kind of, uh, yeah, free reign to ask a lot of things. And also it kind of makes people happy, I've noticed, like because this person that they've seen on TV is like showing an interest in their lives. I'm doing it for selfish reasons because I'm incredibly curious about people. But what I've noticed is that I I think people kind of like talking about themselves. I ask invasive questions, but I realize like people don't normally ask invasive questions even to their friends. Like it's kind of an odd thing to do. It's this this weird thing because I've been thrown into this kind of strange life that allows me to do that. And then for me, it's so interesting. I end up writing about people. I end up hearing the weirdest stories. Also, people like seem to be more open to divulging personal information to somebody they've seen on TV. It's just this weird thing where they feel like they're on the spot. It's this weird encounter and they tell me personal things and I respect them. I never obviously like, I don't do anything bad with that information, except maybe I like, you know, write about it in some totally unrecognizable fictional way. But I have been put in a position that allows me to do that. So in a way that allows me to kind of compensate for the lack of uh, quote, you know, kind of realism that I'm missing, let's say, or it compensates for the uh, lack of a ability I have to eavesdrop on people without them noticing me. So I, I love this and I, I totally actually admire it as a, as a reporter, but, but walk me through a conversation that, that began with somebody coming up to you and led to some story that, that shocked you. What, have, what is the sort of pattern and what is the one of these that went in a direction you, you didn't expect? Uh, like three days ago in London, uh, a guy from Nigeria told me that uh, the English should have stayed and that the French should have stayed in West Africa. I was like, what? He said, uh, yeah, no, the colonization was the best thing to happen to Africa. I was like, what? He said they left way too early. They should still be there. Africans aren't capable of running. This is what he was telling me. I was shocked. I mean, I never heard anything like that. You know, as a, as a liberal Westerner, you know, we look at colonization as a, you know, oh, this kind of tragic thing. Oh, it's so sad, you know, and uh, people, you know, their, their land was taken and their mineral rules were taken to benefit, you know, some kind of aloof Western authority that never steps foot in, you know, the King Leopold thing. And I was hearing the exact opposite from a Nigerian man. So uh, this is because I was like, you know, he came up to me and started talking to me uh, and I asked him all these questions. And it was absolutely fascinating. I mean, so, I mean, something like that you'd never get to hear. I would never have gone up to, you know, somebody, hey, are you Nigerian? Do you have a feeling about colonization that, you know, <laughs> uh, you, know it, you know, goes against all, all the things I've learned in anthropology school at a liberal arts university in New York? So w what are your invasive questions? Do you have a, a go-to list? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Always, you know, where are you from? Uh, how did you end up here? 
is your family still there? And then, you know, usually one of those answers will tip me off to something that much more interesting. Are, are you a Humans of New York fan? Oh, I've heard of that. My sister loves it. What, what exactly is it? So it, it's a, uh, it's on Facebook and Instagram and probably a couple other social networks I'm not thinking of here. But he goes around uh, just the streets of New York and he will stop and take pictures of people. And then he will ask them for he'll basically just interview them for, it seems to me, I've listened to a great interview he did. You can actually download it uh, as a podcast. It's with Chase Jarvis. And he talked about how he interviews him and he gets people to divulge incredible things. And and in this podcast I heard with him, he was doing uh, an interview, basically exactly like the one we're doing now, but in front of a live audience. And they just brought up someone from the crowd kind of randomly. And the reason I asked you, do you have a, a set of questions? Because he, he did it live. And within four conversational moves, he actually had this woman who just walked up out of the audience in near tears talking about how she had fought to take her younger sister away from her mother and then had oh legally God. adopted her younger sister <laughs> and had been raising her now as a younger, as a younger sister, as a teenager that went through these very hard years. But he was saying something very connected to what you just said, which was that it was his impression. I mean, he's not, you would not know him if you ran into him on the block, but he said, it's definitely his impression that people are more willing to divulge deep truths about their life or, or deep realities of, of their life to people they don't know than to people they do, because they're That's not right. concerned with the people they don't know judging them. That's exactly right. And it's, and it's, it's almost like you're speaking to a blank slate. And I think also like, it seems to me, and this is just judging from my own personal involvement with this kind of thing, is that people are happy to talk about this stuff, stuff that we think, oh, this is personal or private, things that we often think of as, uh, you know, the thing that no one ever talks about. It seems to me the exact opposite. It seems like people do want to talk about this stuff if the context is not against them. Yeah, I mean, it's something that I've been, I remember when actually it it's made me think, particularly doing this this podcast, a lot about the conversational strictures we operate under in what we think of as informal context. So I think we mm -hmm. tend to think of, of our informal conversations as being pretty free, and they're actually really not. There are pretty sharp boundaries when you're going to see the person again in a week or again in three days on what mm -hmm. you can feel comfortable talking about versus not talking about. I mean, something I'm actually going to be doing with, with this show is bringing on some people who are, who are actually friends of mine who I want to have these conversations with, but it just feels totally... <laughs> out of context to have them when we're when we're getting a drink. But the other thing, I, I used to think about this a lot when when I was single and, and dating, when you know you try to walk up to somebody in a bar and you'd be talking to them for for 10 minutes. And I remember thinking every time, we are both more interesting than this. Whatever has happened here, mm. we we are not this flat. I know I am not this flat, but somehow we cannot make it there. <laughs> yes. What do you think that is? I think it is I think it's two things. One is I think it is a fear of being judged, which is sharper um, when you're around someone you care about or around someone you're hoping in the future will care about you, right? I mean, there's, <laughs> right. there's no context in which you're more afraid of being judged than meeting someone at a bar uh, right. for all kinds of different reasons. And then, and then the other is that I have some friends who are, made friends, but I know some people who are not that concerned with conversational niceties. I, I know a guy, for instance, who when he meets you, the thing he will say is, what is the biggest idea you've been thinking about lately? 
And on the one hand, that is it's a little bit off putting. It's a strange thing to experience. And on the other hand, conversations with him are more interesting than conversations <laughs> with other people. And That's this right. is something I would like to cultivate in myself better. Uh, I, I think that people would enjoy having conversations where they were taken more seriously in that way. But it's a very right. hard hump to get over. Well, it's also like, what do you want to accomplish by having a drink with your friend? Like, what is it? Are you just there to kind of just confirm your own existence to each other? Yes, I see you. I see you. And talk about the weather, which can, you know, also mean that you're talking about, again, just the existence of the world still being in order. Or do you want to have a good time? I met, uh, who did I meet? I met Ricky Gervais, this, this, this great comedian. I, I think he's just brilliant. I, I love the character he did on The Office. And I asked him, like, what do you look for in a friend? And he said, I just want people who make me laugh. I said, that's it? He's like, yeah, of course. I just want to be laughing all the time. I was like, not all the time. Come on, really? Just all the time? He's like, yes, I want to be surrounded by people who make me laugh all the time. And I want to make them laugh all the time. I thought, oh, that's so interesting. What an interesting thing. He's looking for this like almost kind of transactional, productive thing of that if I'm going to be with people, I'm not going to be working. I'm not going to be sitting on my own. I want to be doing this thing I like to do, which is laughing. I thought, oh, that's so interesting. And he looks, looks at it almost like this kind of commercial, uh, you know, experience. Let me ask you, uh, a variant on the question you asked Ricky Gervais, has what you looked for in a friend changed from when you were, let's say, 18? Yeah. Yeah. I want, I want to be told something I don't know about. The truth is when I was younger, all of my friends were much older. Uh, my best friend when I was 13 was, I had two friends. One was 41, was 34. My current situation is pretty much the same thing. Uh, Wait, and, how did you, um, uh, hold on, I'm, I'm going to stop you there for one minute. How, would they have said my best friend is this 13 year old? Absolutely. Yeah. How did that relationship yeah. work? Um, I met them through theater and I was like a smart kid and we stayed in touch and we had all the same interests. And I mean, I'm still friends with those people. And my two friends now are, you know, also, you know, that much older than me because because I'm interested in like the thing they could teach me about like things I don't know about. Like, I don't really have that much interest in having like a good time socially. It probably gets at the things we were talking about earlier about like not allowing yourself to enjoy things by, you know, for fear of relaxing into rot. Um, and so in that way, I want to like learn something. I want to, you know, I want to hear about somebody else's interesting experience. I want to hear something from somebody that they know about the things that I don't know. I mean, like, you know, as I said, like my best friend, he teaches kids who uh, have been arrested are waiting trial. Like he sees a part of the city that that even if I really tried hard, I would never get to see. And he also is a great guy. And, you know, I love him for every other reason. Uh, and my partner teaches inner city kids. So I'm surrounded by that. And these are people that are, A, doing things that I respect and admire and think they're better people than I am. They're, you know, Mother Teresa said the meaning of life is to help other people. That was the first time I ever heard somebody say something about the meaning of life that I thought sounded kind of accurate and not pretentious. These are what these people are doing. I might be helping somebody maybe in a roundabout way if they like the things that I'm in or whatever, but it doesn't feel as explicitly related to some kind of social benevolence. And so um, I really admire these people. And also they know about things that I will never be exposed to, that I will never know. And in that way, they're kind of like, uh, you know, it's, it's great. So it has this kind of social utility. I wouldn't describe my friends as being in a kind of social uh, utilization, but yet they do provide that. And that's held true for you. So you, you, at 13, I totally get it. You were looking for people who could teach you something about, uh, about the world. And that's true for you now, that for, for you, that has been consistent. A hundred percent. I mean, I share a dressing room right now with this actor, Kunal Nair. He's on The Big Bang Theory, uh, which is what he's very known for. And uh, he's in my play now. He plays the Nepalese student that, that I'm 
roommates with. And I could tell you, you know, specific things about New Delhi because we've shared a dressing room now for a year and a half. That when I meet somebody from New Delhi, they think I've lived there because all I do is ask him about his culture there, uh, his family there. I'm so interested in it. I love sharing a dressing room with this guy for the last year and a half or whatever. We've been doing the show for quite a long time um, because I, he knows things that I don't know. And how wonderful is that? And it's stuff I could kind of read about. But when I'm reading about it, I can't get the very personal experience you can get from interviewing somebody and asking the questions that you want to ask. And I want to know, like, if I grew up in his suburb of New Delhi, like, what would my life be like? Like, what would I experience? Somebody like me, who in a way is very much like this actor, Kunal, uh, who's a smart guy and <laughs> totally open to uh, telling me everything that I want to know. That's really interesting. And I- I'm I'm fascinated by the sort of interplay here between that you still are, despite how intense your life has gotten, not that interested in vacations, not that interested in just having like a socially good time. And that's remained consistent. Because for me, as things have gotten busier, I have definitely changed in those respects and have definitely retreated a little bit from, you know, basing my friendships around curiosity and basing my friendships around around learning. Uh, and so I guess the question I'm, I'm working up to here is that from the outside, given how big you've gotten just in some objective movie star sense, I would think that would make you feel very vulnerable. And most people I've met who have had that experience have to some degree retreated. And it doesn't sound like it has had that effect on you. Retreated into what? Retreated into just... Yeah, retreated into people they know better, retreated into things that are a little bit more fulfill, uh, familiar, retreated into mm. a, a a sort of core that is more unchanging as things outside of that core change faster and faster. Mm. Oh, that's interesting. No, I mean, the thing that makes me comforted is thinking that I'm learning and that I'm growing and that I'm experiencing, uh, or at least interested in a part of life that doesn't seem easy. I, I don't know. I mean, I th- that's my comfort zone. My comfort zone is learning about that kind of stuff. That's how I grew up. That's what I was raised to value. Um, and that to me is, I'm so much more comfortable backpacking through Cambodia than I am like on vacation. I mean, I'm in a, in a, in a way that we think of comfort. I'm more relaxed. I mean, if you probably check me on some physiological level, check my blood pressure, I'd be much more relaxed knowing that I'm learning about this thing that I feel like I'm bettering myself in some kind of I don't know, way that I'm learning about how the world works, how people who are struggling live, how governments where there's a lot of corruption affect the you know population, which is something I'm learning about now in Nepal uh, and doing this play. Uh, Nepal is struggling through new democracy. And like to me, that's the only thing that makes me comfortable at night after I have a long show and I'm stressed out about the next show where we have opening night. That's what I read about to make me feel comfortable, that or basketball. <laughs> so what did you learn backpacking in China? Uh, I, uh, I mean, oh, got so much there. I was like there for two months. I mean, it was really interesting. I went from Beijing all around the country for like 45 days and then into Lhasa, into Tibet. Were you doing this alone? Uh, I was doing this with a girlfriend and, um, uh, you know, I mean, it was really interesting to go to Lhasa before they built the train that takes people from, you know, China into Lhasa and to learn, you know, the kind of Chinese idea of the province of Tibet, of the country of Tibet, however you want to refer to it. Yeah, it's just fascinating. It's fascinating um, to travel around there and to kind of, you know, at once be uh, this kind of safe American and feel like, well, you know, my you know, my life is not threatened here because I'm not part of, you know, the oppressed here, but to be able to learn. And then in some way, like I write about this stuff. So like my first play talked about kind of stuff like that. And my plays are like funny. They're not like, uh, you know, I kind of pretentious 
you know, dialectics or, you know, or any kind of didactic political or polemic or whatever. But this is the stuff I'm interested in. And my characters talk about it in ways that are kind of funny or show the character as being ignorant in some way. So it comes out in stuff that I write or stuff that I think about or activism that I do. And the activism that I do is pretty much limited to domestic violence because that's a, you know, kind of an apolitical and very important issue for me. And so that's the kind of stuff I focus on in terms of like activism. But the reason I say all this is because I think learning about it is important and it does get filtered through stuff, especially if you're like a public person or if you're a writer or even a writer of fiction, unlike, you know, what you do writing, you know, I would say more explicitly, uh, you know, about more explicitly about issues um, than I will ever do. Um, I think it's important and I think it, it comes out in some way. Let, let me ask you about a particular impression from China. So I was there a couple of years ago and I find that uh, a lot of people who go to China come away with this rising power impression that they come back and, and all they can talk about is, you know, the government moves so fast, they bulldoze whole city blocks to create whatever they want. The airports are so gleaming. The trains are all new. And, th- and they come back and there's this feeling of America as a declining power. And, and I went there and I had strangely the exact opposite reaction. I went there and all I saw was tail risk. All I saw was this is going to be so fucking hard that there are such that one getting out of sort of the middle income trap is so hard just on, on its own merit. But there is so much division in the society that is currently being papered, papered over by economic growth and by a pretty oppressive political culture, that there's so much environmental risk in, in that society. And so much of a feeling that if they're not able to keep things moving, that a society that is really not built at this point for dissent is going to begin having a lot of it with no clear plan for how to deal with it except for crackdown. And I walked out thinking, my God, I really hope they're able to pull this off. I'm curious which feeling you had leaving there. Were you, did you have the feeling of China is going to overtake us all? Or did you have the feeling of, my, my God, like, holy shit, how are they going to get this done? Well, you know, uh, listen, I come from like, uh, you know, a liberal family. You know, we are, uh, you know, we support unions, we support low income housing, you know, the, you know, increase in building for low income housing. We, we took a boat down the Yangtze River and we passed through a city that had red lines uh, about like 30 feet up on every building. So like uh, picture a horizontal line at a certain altitude, let's say 30 feet up on every building. I said, what is that red line? They say, oh, that's where all the water is going to go. So um, this this town would be, you know, uh, 30 feet underwater. So when I look at stuff like that, I'm filtering it through, you know, kind of a liberal American perspective of saying, well, goodness, my God, it's going to displace, you know, you know, thousands, maybe millions of people. I don't know. You know, it's upsetting. But I imagine other people can look at that and go, this is amazing. Look how fast it's moving with a government like this, where there's kind of, let's say, more of a a single minded presence. You know, uh, look how efficient this is and look how amazing it is. I mean, it depends on your perspective. I come from the perspective that says, my God, what's going to happen to these people and that bicycle. But, you know, but I imagine there's another perspective that's that's valid. And of course, you know, being in a, you know, a different place is probably not for me to judge. So just listening to you, you you seem to me to absorb the world pretty cerebrally. And and for me, that would make sense because I then write down facts, right? And I say, and look, there are these red lines and that's where the people are going to get displaced up until. But you have to somehow create an output into a play or into a movie that is not didactic in the way that I can be and, and am a didactic pedantic boring human being. So how do you do that? When you when you want to give the folks an impression of something you believe is true about Nepal or believe is true about China, but you have to somehow do it in a way where you are not just lecturing the audience on that, what what is the technique you have? How, how do you think about that? You you create a character that knows about this stuff and is pig-headed about it. So my character in my current play is railing against certain things in Nepal that he knows nothing about. And the Nepalese character, who's the voice of reason, uh, you know, 
know, occasionally questions him and I tear him apart because of something I've read or something I think about. And that's where the comedy comes from. And I think that's where the world perspective comes from. It's, you're, it's I'm saying, like, for example, in terms of the uh, water level rising, if there was a character on stage and he was screaming about the water level rising in China, but he was in a really nice apartment in New York and had nothing to do with it, you would think this guy doesn't know it. He's an idiot. My God, he doesn't have, he has not earned the right to say this. And that makes for comedy. That makes for a good story. And frankly, I think it makes for good commentary on the way that privileged people in very safe environments talk, lament things that are not going to affect them. And there's a hypocrisy at the core of that irony that can be really funny and compelling on stage and and in some way can be profound if done in a, you know, a context that allows for the audience to bring themselves to it. If you had not gone into cultural production, right, if you were not creating culture for people to consume, what would you have done? I would have taught. My parents are teachers. My partner's a teacher. My friends are teachers. That's what I would have done. I imagine there's some kind of performance aspect that I probably would have done well in, you know, that part of teaching, the kind of more performative aspect of it. I probably, you know, would have excelled in it because that's where my inclinations lie anyway. And I love learning. And I think those two things probably would have made me a decent teacher. It's one area that I th have no ambivalence about. I mean, I, you know, uh, even I've been raising money for a domestic violence shelter, which seems like, which seems like, well, that should be like, you know, there should, but I sometimes feel strange doing it or asking people for money for it or something. So that feels weird. But teaching, I have no ambivalence about. I just think it's, you know, it's, it's something so pure and perfect and necessary. What, what grade would you have wanted to taught? Probably as older as possible. So I can, you know, talk about the things that we're talking about now without having to kind of, uh, you know, spoon feed the kind of fundamentals. Do you think there's something that, that seems interesting in that, that instinct of yours? I feel like there is, I, I took, I, I almost majored in religious history in college uh, and ended up not, but I had a professor there who said to me that he thought a big um, part of the Jewish experience was that there was a tendency when raising children in Judaism to talk to them like little adults and not like children, that, that there was a, a desire to like endlessly argue about things as opposed to households and other traditions where, you know, the father's word or the mother's word just sort of has to be respected. Um, right. Do you think, do you think that's true? I do, but I don't think there's, I don't think, but I don't think that means there's a lack of obedience. I mean, I think the implication with what you were just saying is that, oh, then there's no obedience or no respect for the elders. And that's exactly the opposite. I was taught to question everything to the point where you're, if you're questioning obedience, you would, your answers as a rational thinking, smart person would lie in the, uh, on the side of, you know, giving up the seat for the elderly, because there's a rational, you know, totally logical reason for that. So it was not blind adherence to rules. On the contrary, it was questioning them until you figured out why they exist. And if they exist for valid reasons, then you not only follow them, but try to uphold them in society in a kind of greater way. So speaking of, of questioning, um, of questioning everything, what do you think is true that most people think is false? <laughs> um, uh, question number 17. I don't know. What, what do you think? So I think American democracy is fundamentally unstable in ways that I'm not quite uh, on the side of, of those like my mm. colleague Matt Iglesias, who believes there's going to be a, a constitutional crisis leading to collapse. But I think we are in for a period of instability marked by near crises and occasional serious crises that within 25 years, if you look back on this era from mm. 25 years in the future, we will have made substantial changes to the way the system works. And we will have mm. seen some some actually bad things happen, either in terms of opportunities missed or in terms of uh, actual crises that, that were artificially created, as almost happened a bunch in the last five years. Uh, very interesting. 
Yes, this I I I would feel strange commenting on that, but I that's very interesting. So the tables have turned in this discussion. <laughs> Let me ask you two two more questions that I that I end these interviews with. So one is well, this is a new one, but. What is the technology currently being developed that you really hope to live to see to fruition? What do you think will change the world in a way that you would like to see it? So my aunt is 104. I got into town last night to do press for this movie for today, uh, for Now You See Me Too. Uh, so I saw her last night. Uh, she's like my uh, my mentor, I would say. And she's now bedridden. But she has told me since I started seeing her when I'm 17 every week, uh, she just keeps asking when, when the jetpacks are ready. Um, and she's not senile at all. She just really wants to know when are the jetpacks getting. <laughs> ready. She is convinced that humans will be flying by the time I'm, you know, uh, well, she thought it would happen already. She doesn't know about Uber or TiVo though. So I, you know, she maybe, she maybe missed some of the, a few of the recent ones, but, um, but she's convinced jetpacks will happen. So I, on behalf of her, I'll say, yeah, maybe some kind of jetpack. Then the final question is what are three books you've read that influenced you, that mattered to you, that, that you think people should read that you would recommend to the audience? Uh, probably from an emotional perspective, uh, this book Patrimony by Philip Roth, it's his nonfiction book uh, about his father and the death of his father. That was great. And it, it, I think for some kind of like emotional insight, I think there's nothing better. There's a book about the Philippines that I sometimes cite because I thought it was so interesting, which I read recently called Illustrado. And then, you know, I like Woody Allen books for like their absurdity. Uh, you know, there's another great writer who's a friend of mine now, Simon Rich, who's a funny writer. Um, I like these things too. And why not throw one of those into the mick to offset the gravity of the other two? All right. This has been a huge amount of Fun. Uh, Jesse, I really appreciate you taking the time on it. Oh, yeah. Thank you so much for doing this. I'm going to skip my next therapy session. Thank you. That was Jesse Eisenberg. I uh, really, really had a lot of fun doing that. I hope you all enjoyed listening to it. Thank you to him for taking the time. To my producer, AC Valdez. Uh, this is a Vox.com and Panoply production. And we'll see you all here next week. <laughs>